So we've been moving through the Gospel of Mark every week, and our theme for this series is insurrection, that the Gospel itself is an insurrection. The Gospel is a force that overthrows the powers and principalities of darkness in this world. Now, I wanna, I'm, I'm going to be going, we're going to be studying Mark chapter 3, verses 1 to 6 today. So if you have a Bible, you can start heading there. But I want to review last week, because last week is really kind of a bit of a part one in Mark's Gospel to this part two and, and, and uh, what we're going to see today is that Mark presents things in a way that really pops if you remember and are reminded of the part one that we talked about last week. So last week in Mark 2, verses 23 to 28, Jesus and his disciples are going through grain fields. They pluck some grain, some Pharisees, teachers of the law, catch them. They interrogate Jesus. Why are they doing what's unlawful? They're, they're trying to figure out who this Jesus is, because he obviously operates with power, but he doesn't seem to uh, play the religious game that at least they expected a godly, righteous leader to do. And they're, they're trying to get Jesus, Jesus' disciples in trouble for reaping, for working on the Sabbath. And he says to them, kind of make a long story short, he pushes back on them, and he says, you know, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It was his way to say, you've, you've inverted this gift. That Sabbath was meant to be a gift. It was a law. It was a command. It was a duty. But it came out of a heart from God that it was about liberation and freedom. And we talked about the two things that kind of lay behind laying God's heart for the Sabbath. That the Sabbath offered rest and, and recentering or restoration through worship. Genesis 2, verses 2 and 3, God finishes, finishes six days of work, and then he rests on the seventh day. And he says, this is good. And God put this Sabbath rest rhythm into all of creation as a, so that his creatures could enjoy rest and to be restored and to recenter themselves on the goodness of who God is and his glory. But Sabbath was also specifically for the Israelites to remind them that they were no longer to live as slaves. In Deuteronomy 5, verses 12 to 15, God said this. He says, I want you to observe the Sabbath by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Remember that um, passage in Leviticus 26 that I read last week where God says, um, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. I broke the bonds of your yoke and enabled you to walk with heads held high. God said, you were slaves. Pharaoh and the Egyptians and the cultures around you thought of you as nothing. You thought of yourselves as nothing. 400 years of slavery had gotten into your bones. I broke that. And I'm now teaching you how to walk like a human being, to walk with head held high, with dignity. And Sabbath was an integral part of Israel relearning what it meant to be human and what it means to be God's people. And then Jesus drops this bomb on the Pharisees. He says, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath, which was massive because the Pharisees understood the Sabbath was instituted by God. It wasn't an, an invention of man. No, no, no human being had authority over the Sabbath. In their view, the Sabbath had, had authority over people because God had instituted it. So you were under its authority. 
Jesus says, mm, not really. I actually have authority over the Sabbath. Which to them was uh, mind-blowing to say the least. And it was a dangerous thing to say because it's a first century way, one of the many we've already seen in Mark, of Jesus saying, oh, if I was, I understand that if I was just a human being, what I'm saying is blasphemous, but I'm comfortable saying it because I'm not just, I'm not, I'm not a mere human being. I'm God come in human form. This is a first century way of Jesus claiming divinity. So in Mark 2, verses 23 to 28, Jesus is telling about the kingdom. He's teaching about the kingdom. And what you're going to see today in Mark chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, is Jesus is showing the kingdom. So this is kind of a show and tell, part 1 and part 2, but the order is reversed. The first time, Jesus is telling the Pharisees about the nature of who he is, the nature of the Sabbath, the nature really of the gospel in a lot of ways, that he is Lord of the ceasing. We talked about that last week. But today, he's actually going to show the kingdom. So Mark 3, verses 1 to 6. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. And then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So in six verses, you have Jesus showing up to synagogue worship and by the end, people are now plotting his death. So there's a massive escalation that happens here in six verses. The first thing we know in verse one, Jesus goes to the synagogue on Jewish Sabbath on a Saturday and a man with a shriveled hand is there. The Greek word there is, is um, zeros and it uh, can be totally translated as shriveled. Some translations talk about withered. Um, fewer will say paralyzed, um, but paralyzing is, uh, paralyzed is trying to get at the effect of it. It's someone who, whose hand has been damaged in such a way that it's no longer functional. Now, we live in a society where if you have a damaged hand or a damaged limb, there are lots of resources, socially economic, that can buttress you to continue to move about in your regular life without too much, you know, with a bit of readjustment, but you can kind of live a full and productive life. In the first century, that's, that's not the case. This is probably someone who, because of this injury, is facing a tremendous amount of economic hardship, destitution. There's kind of an urban legend within the history of the church that this was a st stonemason. So this is someone who had gainful employment, lost it, and has now been just trying to survive, but has been impoverished because of this injury. So this is someone who's walking into the synagogue, um, carrying a lot of, of weight, a lot of burden. Number two, it says some of them, meaning the Pharisees, were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they, want, they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Why would, we, why would people get up in arms about healing on the Sabbath? Well, remember the Pharisees' strict, um, precise obedience to not just the written law, but the oral law is what's going to usher in the kingdom of God. And one of the most important values and principles, one of the most important laws of the Pharisees is Sabbath and observing it and keeping it holy. That's one of the markers of what a 
genuine God-fearing Jew, and certainly a pious, genuine God-fearing leader would do in the first century context. So when Jesus is plucking grains, they're like, uh, it's working on the Sabbath? Like he seems to be playing a little bit fast and loose. That's coming pretty close to working on the Sabbath. And now they're wondering whether he's going to heal on the Sabbath. Now you were allowed to offer life-saving measures on the Sabbath. But in, by the time the oral law gets kind of caked on the written law, fast forward to Jesus' time after the law was given, and you have kind of this presumption that, well, if you have an injury that isn't life-threatening, you shouldn't help someone on the Sabbath. The guy has the busted up hand on Friday. He's going to have it on Sunday. Just rest on Saturday, and then you can deal with stuff on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. And so what they're trying to do is to try and push Jesus, and they're trying to get at, like, what, what does this guy actually value? Is this guy really sincere? Is he really godly? I mean, he has powers. He can do miracles. But where do his powers come from? Because he doesn't seem to be expressing himself in a way that lines up with what they thought a legitimate teacher prophet from God would look like. Now, notice the subtext of this whole story is that the Pharisees don't give a rip about this guy with the shriveled hand. That, 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 that's, that's part of the thing that's hidden in plain sight. No, they're not, they're not, they're not, no one is like, oh, I wonder if he's going to heal him, because that would be kind of awkward for us, but kind of great for the guy with the hand. Yeah. They, they don't care. They're using this guy as a, as a trap case. And um, they have, all, the, they're, all they're focused on is trying to figure out who Jesus is and to trap him. They're, they're waiting to pounce. And so their hearts are just, uh, completely close. They're, they're not even seeing just basic human needs for mercy in front of them. Jesus says to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Okay, don't read too fast past that. That is incredibly awkward. Jesus has a sense, Luke tells us, he knows what people are thinking. The atmosphere is a little charged. He's already had a run-in with the Pharisees at the grain fields. They're looking like people aren't, you know, people aren't dumb. They understand that there is now animosity from the religious establishment towards Jesus. We're showing, I don't know if you've ever shown up to a church service before where you knew announcement was going to come, was going to be announced or something like really pivotal. And like the whole time you're just on eggshells and it's awkward. And you're like, oh, or maybe it's been a, a meeting or maybe it's been a, a meeting at work. But the atmosphere is charged. At some point in the service, Jesus just singles out somebody and says, I want you to stand up in front of everybody. Whew, that's awkward. It's awkward for everybody in the room. It's doubly awkward for the man, the person with the shriveled hand. And yet I think there's something really, really interesting, devotionally speaking, in, in, this, in this little sidebar here. Jesus says to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. And I was reading over this and praying over it this week, and I realized, you know, sometimes Jesus is going to ask you to stand up in front of everybody. He's going to call you. He's going to say, you, Joe, John, Jane, Deborah, I want you to stand up in front of everybody. I'm calling you to do something. And it is going to be pretty awkward because you might be the only person standing. 
There might be something God puts on your heart. Maybe even as Dale was talking about some of these trips this morning, you felt like something in your heart. You had a, a whisper, an impression where God's saying, I want you to investigate that more. Sometimes Jesus, through his spirit, by his word, says, stand up in front of everybody. And that can be really embarrassing. Blair emailed me last night, and he said, I want you to let everyone know that the team at Rush is having a great time. And one of the high school students who came on this trip, there was an altar call last night, and a student who who was not a Christian came forward and accepted Christ for the first time in her life last night. And I thought about that atmosphere, and I thought, you know, here's someone who's hearing the voice of Jesus say, I want you to stand up in front of everyone and come forward. That'd be pretty awkward and embarrassing for a teenager to do. But they did it, and now they're born again. Now they have this whole new horizon of possibility open to them, both in this life and in the life to come. I thought about Max and Colleen, who who are from our church, but just went on the Project Santiago trip uh, down in Ecuador. And they're another couple who I've been processing with over the last year, and it's very clear that God has been saying, I want, I want you guys to stand up, and I want you to do this. And none of their friends, none of their peers are kind of taking some of the leaps of faith that they're doing. They're looking long-term to transition to be half-time missionaries in Ecuador and then staying here for half the year. It means a complete overhaul and reconfiguration of their life as they've known it. But they hear the voice of Jesus saying, I want you to stand up. And I'm sure they would say it would be a lot easier if there was 10 other people standing with us and doing this because it's scary for them. They have no one that, that, you know, around here that they can talk to. They, they sit down with me as their pastor, and I'm like, I've never done what you're doing. And, and so it can kind of feel embarrassing, and, and you can feel alone. But it's also tremendously exciting. But we need to understand that there are going to be times where Jesus calls us to stand up. Now, it might not be maybe that extreme, It might be for you to stand up. Jesus might be calling you to stand up in your area of work for some reason. Maybe it might be a a situation within your family. But we have to understand that sometimes Jesus singles us out. And he says, I don't want you to worry about what anyone else is doing. I'm telling you to do this. When the man is standing back to the scene in the synagogue, Jesus asks them, the Pharisees, but it's really he's asking the whole group that's gathered. He says, what's lawful on the Sabbath? to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill, and they're completely silent. No one says anything. Now, what's interesting is I read, I read this and read this and read this and was studying it and poring over it, and I understood the, the gravity of the question, but I didn't understand the layers underneath Jesus' question. It's easy in that moment with the man standing to think what Jesus is talking about is the man. Here's the man who's standing. I have a test case for you, right? They're trying to trap Jesus. Now he's going <laughs> he's gonna to reverse it. He's going to try and trap them. Here's my question to you. What's lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or evil? To save a life or to kill? Why does he say that? That's actually not what's at play here. No one's, the guy's not going to die if he's not healed. There's no... That's like hyperbole at worst. What's going on? Again, Jesus knows their thinking, and he knows they're actually, these people are using the man with the withered hand because they're trying to plot to kill Jesus. That's what's in their heart. So he's using this as a way to say, okay, by the letter of the law, um, from your perspective, you know, you've 
caught my disciples working on the Sabbath. Um, you're wondering whether or not I'm going to bring healing to someone. Let me ask you a question. Hypothetically, would that be worse than plotting to kill someone on the Sabbath? Because Jesus is already, he's seeing where this is going. Whether it was supernatural or just a tr- tremendous emotional or relational insight. This is targeted, for those who have ears to hear, this is targeted at the Pharisees. So that leads the situation to become even more charged. No one's saying anything. You can hear a pin drop. And it says, Jesus looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Totally back to normal. Now, the text says Jesus looked at them, the Pharisees, in anger. The Greek word is orge, and it means anger. The, um, the stronger way to say it, so that we don't bring our own cultural biases to that word, is a state of fury. So Jesus looks at them in a state of fury, and there's something else that's wedded with that. It's this idea of being deeply distressed. The Greek word is sulopeo, which means distressed, but um, stomach-churning grief or sympathy over seeing something that churns your stomach, but not in a grotesque way, in a heartbreaking way. Jesus looks at the Pharisees. He, he knows their game. He sees where this is going. He sees the hardness of their hearts. And he is simultaneously feels rage at the injustice of what is all taking place and um, stomach-churning sympathy. That is a really interesting mix. I, I think the, the last time I felt that, if, if I could put it in these words, was um, remember when the ISIS group trotted out the 21 Christians on the beach uh, in the Middle East and, and beheaded them? And, and that kind of, the video went viral, but the, the, the kind of the whole story went viral. That's the last time I remember feeling that intensity of these two emotions. A rage of fury also mixed with just heartbrokenness and stomach-churning empathy for, for both the perpetrators and the victims. And this is important to see here, and I want to draw attention to this. This is, this is one of the reasons why you need to read the whole Gospels and read it clearly, because this is a situation where this is not, this part of this story does not fit the broader cultural narrative of Jesus is just a really nice guy who did nice things, pushed nice values, domesticated nice values. Jesus, we see in the Gospels, Jesus is full humanity. And we're seeing that here. And Jesus gets angry. Jesus gets sick to his stomach, upset at times. And there are many times in life where that's an appropriate response. We are not genuine Christ followers. If we can move through this world, see a lot of the brokenness that's in our own hearts and in the world, and kind of shrug it off. Or even to use our faith as a shield to say, oh, well, God is good all the time. To be moved by the Spirit of God, to be born again by the Spirit of God, to be walking in step with the Spirit means we're going to have time to look at the world and we're going to get angry. And we're going to be deeply distressed. And that's a good thing. I know many of you are involved in justice initiatives, um, locally and globally, and a lot of what has fueled that has been you're deeply distressed over the state of things. And that's a good thing. And some Christians are uncomfortable with that. because like, well, don't get too angry. 
But we see Jesus here being angry because anger at the brokenness of the world and a resolve coming out of that to do something about it, to meet that brokenness with God's love and grace, that is a good and holy impulse. Jesus, it says here that Jesus was distressed at their stubborn hearts, hardened hearts. Now, what's going on there? Uh, The heart, I have a discipleship model. I talk about heart, soul, mind, and strength. I use that term not in the biblical sense of the way the Bible uses the term heart. I'm using that as kind of a psychological grid to help people just think through. There's different dimensions to my life that I need to be growing in as a Christian, not just one. When the Bible talks about heart, it talks about about the unifying center of human personhood. The heart is the place that that produces things that, in our context, we would associate with the mind. Um, Grief comes from the heart, desires, joy, understanding, thoughts and reasoning, but more importantly, central beliefs. What we choose to put our faith and trust in, that comes from the heart. Jesus says that the heart is the, the soil for good and evil, and that what comes out of the mouth, what gets expressed in our life, starts in the heart. And so Jesus sees these Pharisees and he says, out of the center of who they are, there's, there's a stubbornness, there's a stiff-neckedness that the Old Testament talked about. There's this um, hardened aspect to this callousness. And a hardened heart biblically means the inability to see properly, the inability to hear properly, the inability to understand the truths of God, to remember God's goodness and his story, and most importantly, the inability to submit. People with hardened hearts are resistant to submitting. Jesus says, even so, even though, you know, I'm, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, the Pharisees' reaction right away is like, mm, no, because they understand that's an implicit claim that he then has authority over them. I'm, I'm resisting that. And it's easy to read these stories and look at the Pharisees and say, tisk tisk, terrible Pharisees, these bad, bad religious people and their hard-heartedness. But these stories are in the gospel because th- that, that, temp- that trap is, we can all fall into that trap very, very quickly. Hard-hearted and the stubbornness of heart is something that endangers everybody in this room. No one's immune. Hard-heartedness is something that we have to be aware of and we have to be vigilant at um, kind of being ahead of the curve on. We have to be willing to confront it as it begins to emerge in our life. Uh, In your notes, I have some early warning signs of a hard heart. Uh, This comes from a, a speaker, Kerry Newwolf. And he just listed these five things. I thought they were really good. I'm not going to spend too much time teaching on them, but um, I think they're a good litmus test to kind of say, he says, in my experience pastoring, this is, these are the beginnings of the movement towards hard-heartedness. You don't really celebrate anything. You don't really cry. There's not a lot of joy or sorrow. It's just kind of a lot of five out of ten. You stop genuinely caring for people. So much of what is supposed to be meaningful becomes mechanical. Passion's hard to come by for anything. There's a lack of enthusiasm. Life energy, enthusia in life. Your life doesn't have a lot of life in it. And number five, which I thought was interesting, he said the other thing that I noticed is that you no longer believe the best about people. You no longer look for the best in people you start presuming the worst, you start highlighting, what you notice is um, people's weaknesses way before you'll acknowledge and notice their strengths. And it says these five things, when you start to see these emerge in your life, you have to start confronting this hard-heartedness in your life. Go in prayer, um, get some counsel, do some things. 
Then in verse 6, it says, The Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Luke 6, 11 says they were furious. They were furious that Jesus would, in a sense, make a mockery of them. Now again, remember, big picture, someone who's economically destitute, had a useless hand, has just been healed. There's no thanksgiving. There's no, we're mad at Jesus, but that was pretty great. All they see, isn't that amazing how God can be doing the most amazing things next door, metaphorically, in your life? Like right there, right in front of you, and you can't even see it. You have a hard heart, you don't even see it. All you see is what isn't happening that you think should be happening, or the way this person is not behaving the way you think. You're, you're missing, I mean, that, this is a haunting text. I always think, how many miracles have I missed that were right in front of me because I just couldn't see it because of the state of my heart, my own heart and headspace at the time. I mean, that is, if there's ever a reason why you want to keep short accounts with God in terms of confession and, and just pouring your heart out to God, it's this. You don't want to miss these beautiful miracles that Jesus does in our midst. Here's what I want to do for a close. Notice again what Jesus is doing in healing the man's hands. He's taught about the Sabbath. He's taught about rest and restoration. He said, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. But now he's showing it. He's doing something tangibly to, yes, validate his authority, but also to say, this is what I plan to do with anybody who submits to my authority as the Lord of the Sabbath. We're, you know, my hands are fine. I have a withered eye. This would work. My, this eye's broken. Um, but biblically, we all have withered hearts. Because of the state of sin, we, we all have hearts and lives that don't work the way they should. And Jesus says, I can take this paralyzed, broken, busted life, and I can, I can restore it. I can, I can actually do that for you. Jesus is showing us what our lives can look like if we embrace him as the Lord of the Sabbath, if we genuinely learn to walk with him. And so here we are today, we're in Christian Sabbath, church together. I don't think there's anyone here with a, with a busted or withered hand. Like I said, I've got my eye. Some of us have other physical ailments. Uh, but I know from talking to many of you, you, you came into this space with something for some of you, many things in your life that are withered and broken, that are dried up, that, that aren't working. And maybe you've been carrying that for a long, long, long time. Maybe there's places in your marriage that have withered. Maybe there's places in your job or your vocation. Maybe it's a relationship with uh, your children or a parent, with a friend. Maybe psychologically you just feel withered and broken because of some burden that you've been carrying. Maybe there's a relationship that was meaningful to you and it has shriveled up. The life has gone out from it. And it feels like it's just going to define you. That's just who you are now. You're the person with the withered relationship. You're the person with the withered marriage. You're the person with the withered job prospects. You're the person with the withered life vision. Maybe you can't even pinpoint it, but when I read those evidences of a hardened heart, there's part of you that says, I think that's me. I don't know where it comes from. I... I I'm not aware of something that is not working the way it should, but 
I live with the effects of it. You've named something. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's not right. I don't want to live like that. And I have been carrying that around. If that is you this morning, in this text and through this text, I want you to hear Jesus say to you, stretch out your hand. And this is what I'd like us to do. I'd like everyone to stand. I'm not going to tell one person to stand up. I'm going to say, everybody stand up. Everyone stand up. And I'd invite you, if you feel comfortable, just to close your eyes. And if there is a place in your life that you feel like is withered, that is dried up, that feels useless, and that it feels like it's come to define you, other people define you through it, you've defined yourself through it, I want you to hear the words of Jesus and his invitation to stretch out your hand. And what I invite you to do is to actually stretch out your hand in front of you, not towards me because I have power, but as an act of faith that says, Jesus, I don't want to live with this. I don't want to carry this burden anymore. I, um, this is a place of dryness in my life, and I, I submit to your lordship. I, I don't even know what the next steps are. I'm just here, and I'm tired, and I, I'm, I'm just feeling dried up. So I invite you just to put your hand forward, and let me pray for us. God, you see the needs in these hearts. And I, I really believe, God, you are Lord of the Sabbath. You are Lord of the ceasing. You can bring suffering and hurt and burdens. Uh, you can bring them to an end. And you can replace them with your grace and your shalom and your rest and your love. And God, I pray for everybody here who in their own way is acknowledging their need for you. I pray that through your spirit, you would minister to them in this moment, but also uh, this week. That as they stretch out their hand, you would bring restoration to them, to these places that they're saying they need help with. That you would bring rest to these places. May you bring flourishing and life to places where it feels like chaos and death have just reigned and ruled for as long as people can remember. I pray for this congregation, God. I pray for myself in these things. God, we, these are not things that we can fix ourselves. We are powerless to do this. We are reaching out to you. We love you. Would you answer these prayers in your best way? Amen. Continue to stand, and I'll invite Dennis up and let's sing a final song together.